Hey guys, welcome back. Today we're joined by Dr. Carol Raniero to discuss SURD. Now, if you're like me and not sure whether we're talking about SURD, spelled C-I-R-D, or SURD-C, or I-T-B, or just plain old kennel cough, then you've come to the right place. In this episode, sponsored by Elenco, Dr. Raniero talks to us about how the different names for this infectious respiratory complex came to be, as well as the approach to treatment and diagnostics, whether you're dealing with an individual pet dog or an outbreak situation. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Raniero and we'll get into it. Dr. Raniero received her DVM from the University of California, Davis. She completed a small animal medicine and surgery rotating internship at Texas A&M University and then returned to UC Davis to complete a small animal internal medicine residency. She also received her PhD in immunology from UC Davis. She's currently a professor and the director of the Comparative Internal Medicine Laboratory at the University of Missouri-Columbia. Dr. Raniero has spoken nationally and internationally on respiratory diseases in small animals and has published over 120 peer-reviewed scientific manuscripts. We're so excited to have her joining us today. Let's jump in. All right, so today I'm joined by Dr. Carol Raniero from the vet school at the University of Missouri. Dr. Raniero, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. We're so happy to have you, and we're here to talk about CIRD, canine infectious respiratory disease complex. And so I guess let's start just very basic. What is CIRD, C-I-R-D? Are we referring to kind of what in the past we've called ITB or kennel cough, or is this something different? That's a great question because anytime the terminology for a particular disease syndrome changes, people wonder if the disease itself has changed, or if it's just a nomenclature issue. So it used to be called kennel cough or infectious tracheobronchitis, ITB, because the emphasis really was on dogs that went to a kennel, had exposure to other dogs, and then developed a goose honk or barking seal kind of cough. So CERD, or canine infectious respiratory disease, refers to, in kind of an umbrella fashion, a number of different bacterial and viral pathogens. So there's over a dozen different players in this complex. And the reason that the name has changed is because it's not just a focus now on tracheobronchitis. It's known that all of these different bacterial and viral pathogens can cause nasal disease. So symptoms like nasal discharge and sneezing, they can cause tracheobronchitis, predominantly manifesting as a cough. And they can also cause systemic signs of illness and direct more severe clinical signs when they cause pneumonia. So things like fever, lethargy, anorexia, and then tachypnea or respiratory distress. So the term is basically to reflect the fact that this is a much more diverse set of clinical signs with a diverse set of bacterial and viral pathogens. That is really interesting because I still have been known to call it ITB, even knowing full well, there's this other terminology out there. So thank you for explaining that, why the terminology has changed and kind of all that it encompasses at this point. So let's go from there and talk about diagnostics. I'll admit, usually if it's an individual dog that comes in with a cough, but is otherwise normal, you know, is bouncing around, eating, drinking, going outside, doing 
all the things they're supposed to do just has this cough. I'm usually not super aggressive in my diagnostic approach. Am I doing the right thing in those scenarios? I hope so. (laughs) So that's actually a great strategy to think about our patients as they're presenting to us. And what we know about CERD is that the vast majority of the dogs that end up developing clinical disease associated with CERD have self-limiting illness. So what that means is sort of whether or not you do diagnostics, whether or not you treat them, you know, with kind of more benign supportive therapies versus more aggressive therapies, they're going to get better on their own. So when I think about what diagnostics I'm going to run, the reason I run diagnostic tests is to directly help me figure out how to manage those cases. And honestly, if you were thinking about doing one of the broad-based PCR panels, by the time you get that back, the animal is probably already better. So it doesn't play into management for an individual dog who clinically is very mildly affected. I'm so glad to hear you say that because so many times on this podcast, I put out, well, this is what I would do. And I'm always so hopeful that somebody's not going to say, oh my gosh, Cassie, why are you doing that? So glad to know that, you know, that's, that's an okay approach to take. Is there a scenario where that approach would be different than the way we would approach just a singular case in a pet dog? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the most common scenario is what you just talked about, an individual pet dog that clinically is doing pretty well, but has a bad cough or has bad nasal discharge. The scenario where you're actually going to change your diagnostic strategy is an individual pet dog that comes in with more severe signs of illness. So I talked about systemic signs like fever, anorexia, lethargy, or more concerning respiratory clinical signs, tachypnea or labored respiration. So in that scenario, the critically important clinical question is, does that dog have pneumonia? So that's number one, you have to run diagnostics to be able to answer that. And number two, is that pneumonia antibiotic responsive? Meaning, is it a bacterial pneumonia? Because remember, CERD is going to apply to a number of different bacteria and viruses, and viruses don't respond to antibiotics. So the way that we approach that individual patient where we're more concerned about severe clinical signs or the potential to develop clinical signs that are more severe, so like a high-risk dog, maybe it's on immunosuppressive medications or chemotherapy, The way we approach that is by doing things like a complete blood count. So we're looking for evidence of a neutrophilic leukocytosis or a left shift. We're going to consider pulse oximetry in any patient that looks like he's having a hard time breathing. Thoracic radiography. And here we're looking for evidence of an interstitial or an alveolar pattern to support pneumonia. And then finally, ultimately, to answer the question of is it bacterial or not, obtaining an airway lavage sample, and that can be transtracheal wash or an endotracheal wash or a blind bronchoalveolar lavage, but doing that so that you can actually culture it and figure out is it bacterial and moreover get a sensitivity so you can pick the right antimicrobial. Is viral pneumonia very common in dogs? I don't feel like it's something I see very often, but it could be that I'm not looking for it correctly. Yeah. So 
any of the pathogens, as I mentioned in SIRD, and there's bacteria and viruses, and the viral ones are things like distemper, adenovirus, parainfluenza, a couple of different strains of parainfluenza, and then less common ones like pneumoviruses and others. They will have the same clinical presentation as a dog with bacterial clinical signs. So anything, like I said, from sneezing nasal discharge to cough to evidence of pneumonia. And playing your odds, if a dog has infectious or contagious respiratory disease that they acquired from another dog, the odds are it's actually viral, not bacterial. So absolutely, we definitely see viral pneumonias. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I've learned something there. What about if we were talking about a shelter or a boarding situation? I mean, we mentioned earlier that this used to be referred to as kennel cough. What's the diagnostic approach if there's a larger outbreak recognized, like a boarding facility, a large number of patients that are coming into the clinic coughing, a shelter outbreak? How is our diagnostic approach different in that scenario? So it's very different when we're considering an individual pet patient versus having a larger outbreak. And in an outbreak scenario, that's where it's absolutely critical that you do the diagnostic test to help you figure out what the underlying pathogen or pathogens are that are causing the clinical disease in that outbreak. And the reason it's so important to be able to know which pathogen or pathogens are involved is because that's going to directly impact how you manage the outbreak. So remember my earlier comment, why you do diagnostics is to help you figure out how you're going to manage it, treat it, that sort of thing. And in an outbreak, it's everything from disinfectants. So if you're thinking about If it's an outbreak of influenza, for example, flu is really wimpy in the environment and most of it's probably dead on its own within, you know, 24, 48 hours and most disinfectants are going to kill it off. Whereas if you have something like adenovirus, adeno is a really hardy virus, especially in organic material. So if people aren't cleaning the fecal material well from the kennels, it's going to persist in the environment and have the potential to spread to others. So that's one example. Another example is the post-recovery kind of infective or shedding period. And that's relevant for when you can start to introduce those dogs back into the general population after they've recovered from their own infection. So if you think about something like Bordetella, most of the time when dogs have Bordetellosis and they're coughing and sneezing, that's kind of their high period of infectivity. By the time that they've stopped doing that, you might be able to like swab their nose or oropharynx and still culture it, but it's not usually infective to other dogs. And if you contrast that to something like H3N2 influenza, so that's the flu that popped over from avian influenza to basically be capable of dog-to-dog transmission, the post-recovery shedding period for that particular virus is 24 days. So quick example, if you have one of those dogs in your clinic, and let's say it's real sick, it's there for a week, so seven days, and it's finally turned the the corner, and you're like, okay, great, you know, so whether it's a boarding facility, the owners come to pick up the dog, and she's real worried because this poor dog has been in isolation, hasn't gone to doggy parks or doggy daycare and seen all of his friends, so she's like, 
real happy to get that dog tomorrow back in his clay group. If you don't educate that owner that the post-recovery shedding period is 24 days and that that dog actually needs to be quarantined for another 17 days, that dog's going to start to be the point source for an outbreak amongst other dogs. So that's why it's important to do the diagnostic testing. In terms of what testing do you do, this is where the broad-based PCR panels for a number of different bacteria and viruses is relevant. If you're strongly suspicious of a bacterial pathogen, I would also do cultures. In terms of how many dogs to test, it's been recommended test somewhere between 10 and 30% of the population. If you have like hundreds of dogs, that's not practical. So bare minimum, you want to test three to five dogs in every outbreak. Okay. That, I, I love that. Those are really good practical tips of kind of how to approach what can be a really nerve wracking situation. So we've covered the diagnostic approach. Let's shift gears and talk about treatment. How would our treatment, how would our treatment approach vary among individual dogs who are mildly ill versus those that have pneumonia or are part of this larger outbreak situation? Yeah, so starting with the first group, if you have a dog that just has goose honk or barking seal cough, remember the vast majority of those dogs are going to have self-limiting infection. So that's where you talk to the owner about good supportive care. That includes, you know, switching out a tight collar around the dog's neck for a harness. Owners love to be able to do things. So airway humidification, anything from purchasing a cool mist air humidifier to when they take a shower, they can bring the dog into the bathroom to breathe in that steam paying attention to what's in the environment that might perpetuate a cycle of coughing. So smoke, cigarette, vaping, essential oils, plug-in air fresheners, other sprays and dusts and powders, either remove the dog from that environment or remove those things from the dog's environment. And then ultimately, if you want to give the dog a medication in the short term, cough suppressants are probably the most indicated, not antibiotics. It's really not going to be recommended to just indiscriminately use antibiotics in those dogs with self-limiting disease because they can get over it with good supportive care. And that's in stark contrast to a dog that presents with bacterial or viral pneumonia, where you have to be much more aggressive therapeutically. So any dog that is hypoxemic is going to need oxygen supplementation. If you're not sure if it's bacterial or viral, ideally you'll get that airway lavage while it's pending. You're probably going to start off on an injectable antibiotic broad spectrum, which you can de-escalate once you get that sensitivity back to kind of use the one antibiotic that is going to do the trick or will be able to effectively clear that particular bacteria if you identify it. And if it's viral, then you can go ahead and just de-escalate the antibiotic directly. Other things that you can do, airway nebulization with coupage, judicious IV fluid therapy is very effective. And then sometimes almost as important as the things we do are the things we're going to want to avoid if they have pneumonia. So cough suppressants are absolutely contraindicated if they have pneumonia. You actually want to encourage them to cough and get all their secretions and that purulent material out. Bronchodilators are not indicated. Furosemide, even if they have a moist sounding cough, you don't want to dry their airways. And then finally, at least at this point, there's no indication in dogs that they really need steroids. And we don't know what the effect of steroids is going to be 
on inhibiting or hampering their immune system from being able to fight off that pathogen. So that's what we do if a dog has pneumonia. If a dog is involved in an outbreak, remember in an outbreak, there's actually two things we need to treat. One is going to be the environment and the other, the individual animals involved in the outbreak. So with the environment, it's paying attention to all the important husbandry practices that we have, cleaning when and where it counts, including paying attention to fomites, you know, shared water bowls or food bowls or stethoscopes, that sort of thing, having good quality air, good air exchanges, making sure we're segregating or quarantining the sick animals. So many, many things that can be done on that side. And then when we're dealing with the individual animals, we're going to split them kind of like we split the pet dogs where the vast majority actually do have self-limiting disease as long as we have good supportive care. And then we're gonna have the other population, which should be just a smaller population that has overt evidence of pneumonia. And we're gonna treat those animals more aggressively like we did the pet dogs. So it sounds like a lot of the same principles. So determining which dogs have self-limiting disease versus which have more severe infections and treating accordingly and then preventing the spread from there. Exactly. Exactly. Wonderful. Well, of course, when it comes to these respiratory diseases, we want to make sure that we're taking measures to prevent the spread wherever possible. So can you discuss, you've kind of talked about cleaning when and where it counts. I love that phrase. Can you discuss some of the fundamental aspects of vaccination against SIRD-C? What are some of the general principles that we need to pay attention to when we're giving this vaccine to help protect our canine patients? So one of the first things to remember is, as I said, this was an umbrella term that refers to over a dozen different pathogens. So we don't have vaccines for every single different bacteria and virus that is part of this complex. So our strategy is generally to focus more on the key players, meaning the ones that are common, the ones capable of causing morbidity, potentially mortality, and those for which we have effective vaccines. So that's going to include some core vaccines, and you're familiar, obviously, with distemper, adenovirus. So the respiratory adenovirus, the reason it's core is not because it's protecting against the respiratory virus, it's because it cross-reacts with infectious canine hepatitis or adenovirus one, but regardless, it's still core. And then many people use parainfluenza, Bordetella is a very effective vaccine. And then finally, we do have vaccines for both the two different types of canine influenza. So when we're thinking about the fundamental principles of vaccinology, we wanna think about giving the vaccine with enough time for it to kick in. So you're probably all familiar with the drive-by vaccination, right? Owners driving by your clinic on the way to the boarding facility, hoping a good five, 10 minutes is going to confer full and protective immunity. And we know that's just not true. Another important principle is going to be how long that vaccine is going to last. So we call that the duration of immunity or DOI. So that's something that's very relevant because you need to know when you have to boost it to confer you know, full protection on an ongoing basis. And then the last thing that becomes particularly relevant when we're talking about mucosal infections, so respiratory tract infections, is the consideration of is 
mucosal vaccination going to be superior to injectable vaccination. And that's particularly relevant for a pathogen like Bordetella, where we have both options. Can you talk about that a little bit more? There are several different routes of vaccination. We have oral, we have the intranasal, we have injectable. Can you talk about the pros and cons of each route? Yeah, absolutely. So the mucosal vaccinations are the oral and the intranasal forms. They're basically given topically at the site where that pathogen is first going to encounter in the wild. It is in general preferred to give a mucosal vaccine. The alternative would be an injectable vaccine. And the currently available injectable vaccine for Bordetella is a cell antigen extract. And so what's important to remember when you're kind of comparing the two is what have the studies essentially shown in terms of efficacy in reducing severity of disease and reducing the amount of shedding. And I think across the board, no matter what study you're looking at, there really is a value to giving the mucosal vaccine. It's going to have much better protection for that individual dog. And then depending on the study, um, because not all studies looked at shedding, but there are some studies that show the mucosal vaccines, again, are far superior in that aspect. And that makes a lot of sense if you sort of think about how the body's own immune system is going to handle a pathogen, giving a mucosal vaccine is going to mimic that. So in terms of other pros and cons, I think the big pro for giving a mucosal vaccine, aside from efficacy, has been targeted more at the oral vaccine, which is having something that is very compatible with the fear-free initiative. So everyone is aware of this big movement where owners have a very high expectation that when they bring their beloved puppy or dog into the veterinary clinic, that it's going to have this like happy experience. It's going to love everyone there. And somehow the idea of, you know, you in the corner trying to shove something up that dog's nose as it's like squealing and flailing and trying to get away doesn't fit real well with the fear-free initiative. So that's sort of one of the reasons why the oral vaccine came up. I think it's just much better thought of by owners. It's not a needle and it's not shoving something up the dog's nose. In terms of kind of the pros for the injectable vaccine, most veterinarians, most veterinary technicians are very, very comfortable giving injectable vaccines. Like that's what we do for the vast majority of our vaccines. So it's very acceptable And in particular, if you have an aggressive dog, it's thought that that can be one of the easiest routes is you just kind of can pop it with an injectable vaccine. The oral vaccine, you can actually give through a muzzle. So I would say it's mostly the intranasal one that tends to be a little bit harder to give if you have an aggressive dog. Well, Dr. Ranero, thank you so much for joining us today. I've loved all the information you've given us about CERD and learned so much. So thank you again. Thank you for having me here. It was wonderful to be able to share some of this information with your listeners. Thank you so much, Dr. Raniero, and thank you everyone for joining us. And I'd also like to say a big thank you to Elenco for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to find out more about this and other exciting podcasts, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. 
As always, we'd love to hear your input on this episode, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.